0: Well, that statement is actually words from us to God, which means it's prayer. So let's go ahead, and we're going to take time to continue that prayer now in song, but with us whispering on our own. So this is our opportunity to pray together. I will lead. So God, I just love this declaration. You're good. You're good all the time, and and. In the English, it, that we could say to somebody, you are good, and it could be, you know, a mostly good, or you are temporally good. But when we are able, it also is able to be said in English, absolutely good all the time. And that's what we mean, God, when we say it to you. Different from how we would say it to any of the rest of us, we're saying you are good all the time. Your character is always at a standard where we can trust that you will always operate with righteousness and holiness and goodness. We can know that, that even in ourselves that we can be good a lot of the time, and, and, but then there are times just based on mood or maybe how something didn't go right or, or our expectations aren't met and, and that goodness slips. I'm glad that you don't slip, that you do not uh, cause yourself to, to go into a mood where your goodness is left behind, but rather in spite of whatever is going here, here here on this earth, you are always, always good and you're operating by your will, by your righteousness, and by your holiness, and you're not letting us and our mistakes thwart what you want to accomplish. So God, we acknowledge that. We lift you up and we say thank you that you're not like us. But Lord, all the more, we want to aspire to be led by your Holy Spirit to become more like you. Lord, I, I want to pray for those here in this room that maybe saying you are good is a difficult to say, thing to say right now. They might know it in their head, but they can't speak it with their mouth because maybe they're angry. Maybe their expectations of what they've been praying for to you were not met, and, and they doubt your goodness. Lord, I, sometimes there are things we don't understand. Your ways often are, are mysterious to us, but I would say, Lord, if there are people that have come in here with that anger, with that resentment, with that doubt, because maybe they don't have that understanding right now of something that they've been reaching out to you in, I ask, God, that in your mercy, your grace, and your compassion, that you would help soften that and reveal your goodness afresh and anew and to show that you are at work, just not in the way they had hoped or expected, but in a better way, Lord. And so we trust in that. We're going to believe in that today. So, Lord, in our hearts, help us to then be willing to receive from you to be teachable, to be honest with ourselves and honest before you so that you can do a deep work in us, I ask. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I shared this in first service, that the repetition of that song is really important, at least for me, because I can say the word, you are good, and i know i'm singing it to god but i don't really think through and i can acknowledge you know he's good but i'm not really thinking through the intensity of his goodness you repeat it and you start thinking and connecting the dots of he is good even in spite of maybe my own personal challenges or or difficulties and i can still say god is good that when I feel like the storms of life have overcome me—not just that I'm in it, that I feel overcome by it—that I can still say again, that God you are good." The psalmists were not hesitant to repeat themselves. They were regularly repeating certain truths so that it would be cemented upon our hearts. The same I do today. The things that I know up here, I need to repeat and be able to say to acknowledge that God is good. Solomon, who was writing his entire letter of Proverbs to help his son, how often did he say, son, do not be like a fool, and then gave a description of it, but rather to be that wise person, and then he would give a description as to what the wise person. He followed that pattern repetitiously so that his son would follow after wisdom and not foolishness. In our repetition, things start simply but they move deeper. And that's really where it's at, is that as we learn things repetitiously, then uh, we will own it, and then it drives deeper. We're doing that in the next few weeks in this series called The Marks of a Disciple. And we're going to start simply, but we're going to drive deeper because we want what we're talking about to be caught and embraced to be modeled and emulated in us, and that 's going to require starting simple but going deeper so i 'm asking you to turn your Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter one, and I am actually not the one preaching this morning i 'm giving just a an initial setup to what we 're going to be doing over the next few weeks so If you're new here, my name is Tony, and I'm the pastor here. And typically I would speak, but I I utilize a lot of other people to join me up on the stage. And over the next few weeks, you're going to hear from today, our executive pastor, Joel. You'll hear in a couple weeks from our adult ministries pastor, Matt. And then our chairman of our elder board will be speaking the week after that. And his name is Corey. And in this series, we want to bring absolute clarity through simplicity so that we can drive it down into the heart. And I want to paint a picture of this before Joel gets up. So in the book of Philippians, of which I am going to teach the entire book in three minutes, and if you know anything about the book of Philippians, it's rich, but there are some things that I think will actually stand out to you by me actually pulling it out of the text and seeing the pattern. So I want to begin in verse 15 of Philippians chapter 1. It says this, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while they am while I am in chains but what does it matter the important thing is this that in every way whether by false motives or true Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice so Paul says something rather profound here he's saying you know there are people out there that are using the name of Christ because, after all, there's been power that has been evident in the name of Christ. There are people that, that are coming in droves to listen to the apostles speak because they hear the authority, they hear the wisdom in it, they see the power being displayed through them. And so there were many that tried to emulate or to copy that approach. So, Paul spent some time confronting that. He has spent time speaking to, you know, these poor motives and and making sure that they stay on the true, straight, and narrow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here he says, even if their motives are wrong, even if they are trying to do it for their own selfish gain, Paul is so passionate to see the good news of Jesus Christ known that he says, what matters most is that people hear about Jesus. He strips it all away. He says, what matters most is not the messenger's character in this case, but rather that Christ is preached. That Christ is preached. That people know the way to find true life. But moving on, the end of chapter 1 Then he says, so whatever happens, verse 27, whatever happens then, conduct yourselves in the manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he starts off this chapter by saying, what matters most is that people get to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he ends up saying at the end, oh, and by the way, your life matters does communicate the behaviors of your life does communicate the gospel it gives a shape to jesus christ so he's saying both behavior and words are important to the gospel so words christ being preached matters more than anything but also your life preaches. So therefore, let your life be worthy of the manner of the gospel that we speak. Then look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, then in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he has said, what matters more than anything is that we preach Christ. Oh, and by the way, your life matters in how you live. It also speaks Christ. And the only way that's ever going to happen for your life to speak Christ is for you to have a mindset like Christ. Okay, so Christ be preached, both in words and in behaviors, but the only way that's going to happen is if you have the mindset of Christ. Then chapter three says this. In verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider those things garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. So he starts with, what's most important? Christ is preached. Well, Christ is preached in word, but it's also preached in the manner of living. The only way to have a manner of living that models Christ is to have the mindset of Christ. And then Paul kind of gets to the end here and says, but you can't have the mindset of Christ unless you know Christ. And Paul says, so in his life, I consider everything else garbage. I mean, he lowers everything else as just mere garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. And if you know Christ, then you'll have the mind of Christ. If you have the mind of Christ, you'll start behaving like Christ. And if you behave like Christ, you'll be proclaiming Christ. And the words that you speak will be even more powerful. So as we go over these next few weeks... We're going to simplify what it means to have the behaviors of Christ. We're going to look at the life of Christ and see just who it is we're to emulate and to be like and to speak of. And so to begin us, begin with us, will be Pastor Joel. Would you please welcome him to the stage?
1: All right, you didn't know it was two for one Sunday, did you? Awesome. So uh, my name's Joel Lingenfelter, as Tony said, and uh, it was actually five years ago, April 30th, 2012, that my family drove out of California on our way to our next adventure in Pennsylvania. We were answering God's call to this church, and uh, so we packed everything up, and 2,600 miles later, here we are. Now the first summer, we really didn't know very many people, and we were living in a rental house while we searched for a home. And what that meant was we had time. We had time to do all the things, the touristy things, that nobody who lived here ever does, right? (laughs) Um, And so one of the first things that I wanted to do was to go to the Ikea in Philadelphia. (laughs) Uh, Now, I didn't want to go there for furniture. I wanted to go there to look out the window. uh, Because out that window is a ship, and it's this ship right there. I took that photograph, and it's the SS United States. Now, the SS United States is a ship that was, when it was built, the fastest and safest ocean liner in the world. And I kind of have a thing for ships, and late at night on the Internet, I'm looking at this thing and thinking it was really cool. So we moved here, couldn't wait to actually go see it. So, unfortunately, it fell victim to the much faster jet aircraft, and today it sits decommissioned there at a pier on the Delaware River. It used to move people around the world. Now it simply turns to rust. Now, the SS United States isn't the only old ship in Philadelphia. If you come in from the south on 95 and you look off to your east, you'll see the old Philadelphia Navy Yard. There's a collection of ships moored there, including the USS John L. Hall. Now, the John L. Hall is a guided missile frigate. Its keel was laid on January 5th of 1981, and it was launched on July 24th of 1981. That means it's the first time it went in the water. But it wasn't until June of 1982 that it was ready for service. On June 26, 1982, the USS John L. Hall was commissioned for duty with the U.S. Navy. Now, on that date, the USS John L. Hall went from being a big chunk of metal in the water to being a warship. Until that date, it was being prepared for its future, but it was not active. It had no purpose. It was not a warship, it was just something that floated. After its commissioning, the John L. Hall served the U.S. all over the world from places such as Chile to the Persian Gulf and more for over 30 years. The commissioning, the commissioning is a unique moment. It's when a cadet becomes a soldier. It's when a boat becomes a warship. It's when there's a fundamental shift and purpose is given. So last week was Easter. What an awesome Sunday as we celebrated the resurrection. He is risen. risen. Ah, you You guys are way more awake than first service. I had to tell them they could say that more than once a year. It was good. So after he was risen, Jesus did a number of things and appeared to over 500 people. But one of the last things that he did on earth was to appear to his disciples on a mountain in Galilee. He had a few words to speak before ascending into heaven. Now, if you have your Bible, open with me to Matthew 28. If you're using one of the Bibles we handed out, it's on page 698. Matthew 28, we're going to read a passage that's well known to many of us. We call it the Great Commission. Okay, you guys are slower than the first service on that one. The Great Commission, right? Let's begin in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now as we'll see later today, these are some of the very last words Jesus speaks to his disciples. He tells them that when he ascends, their job is not over, but quite the contrary, it has just begun. He commissions them to continue what he started, to make disciples. See, Jesus had been doing that since he first called Andrew and Peter all the way back in chapter 4. Make disciples, simple, right? Except, what exactly do we mean when we say make disciples? Make people into fishermen? make them tax collectors, teach them carpentry? Probably not. Have you ever had one of those moments when you realize that you're talking about completely different things with someone because you didn't define your terms? Let's look at this letter of recommendation to a not-so-great employee. It says, Dear Sir or Madam, a man like Judas is hard to find. He's an unbelievable worker, and his career seems to be taking off. He could always be found in the office loaded with work to be done. All in all, I cannot say enough good things about this candidate. I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. I urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment. Sincerely, a not very sincere person. See, on the surface, this sounds fine, right? But, but let's unpack it a little bit. See, a man like Judas is hard to find. He's always absent. He's an unbelievable worker because he lies all the time, right? And his career seems to be taking off because taking off is all he ever does. He could always be found in the office loaded. In other words, when he came to work, he was drunk, right? But there was work to be done. All in all, I I can't say enough good things or quite frankly, any good things about this candidate. I can assure you that no person would be better than hiring this clown for the job, right? So I urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment, right? Very different thing, same words. Right, so it's important to define our term to understand what we're talking about. Sometimes we think we know what someone's saying and in fact our terms don't match. So LESA's mission statement, it's been on the wall for a long time. It says, making disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a great mission statement. It's virtually right out of Matthew 28, word for word. There's no arguing that it fulfills the purpose of the church. And yet, as a staff team, we realized we needed to come to a common definition of what a disciple was if we were going to lead the church in making disciples. See, disciple is just not a word we use every day. Now, we could use the word follower, but follower doesn't have all the meaning and the depth that disciple does. And so if we're going to stick with that, which we should, it's in Scripture, we needed to have a clear definition of what exactly we were trying to make. So Tony tasked our pastoral team to take the next six weeks or so and read through the Gospels and write down everything that we could find Jesus modeling to his disciples. Now, each of us took this task seriously, read the scriptures, and wrote those things down and prepared. And then we had an all-day staff meeting at Lancaster Bible College. Now, on that day, we worked together to write down and classify all the things that Jesus did based on values, attitudes, and behaviors. I think we have a photo of that now, I wanna be clear, Jeff Travis is not asleep at this moment, okay? <laughs> he actually was ducking just to get out of the photo because we wanted to make sure we had this, this record. So, so if you see Jeff, you can tell him you saw him sleeping through our staff meeting. Um, but anyway, we, we wrote these things down and after we'd categorized them, we began to discuss how to make a definition that was easy to communicate. Because if we said to you guys, hey, here it is, it's just way too many words. As those marks became clearer, we began to see a pattern developing. Which makes sense, Jesus didn't hide what it meant to be his disciple, and it became pretty simple as we began to pull it all together. In fact, we were able to find the definitions in the very words of Jesus himself. So let's start by going back to the book of Matthew, and we're gonna turn back to chapter 22. We'll begin in verse 36. Actually, I'll start in 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's pretty good. Way to go, Jesus, right? Like, and and we look at this and we summarize it down to about four words. We said, love God, love people. Right, I'm sure we're not the first people to ever do that, but it's a very simple way to crystallize what Jesus said. Love God, love people. And Jesus emphasized the importance of these two things, and they absolutely must be present in every disciple we make. But not only did did he emphasize it with words, He lived it. And over the coming weeks, we're going to look at how Jesus modeled these things and how we can live them out as his disciples. Now as great as those four words are, they don't encompass all it is to be a disciple of Jesus. Let's go back and look at the Great Commission again in Matthew 28. And if you've got one of these little thingies, Matthew 28 is definitely where to put it. We'll be back here again. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, we are to make disciples, we are to baptize them, and we are to do what? To teach them to do everything that Jesus commanded. See, a disciple isn't just one who loves God and people. It's one who also follows the teachings of Jesus. Those teachings, I'll turn to John 8. I'll just go there on the screen, if you will, to John eight thirty-one. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen. Amen. Jesus taught truth. Jesus lived truth, and a disciple is one who lives the truth that Jesus taught and modeled. The truth that is communicated to us through the word of God. A disciple lives truth. So let me recap. A disciple loves God, right? A disciple loves people, and a disciple lives truth. Now, I love this because there's three, right? And if you know preachers, preachers like threes. Right? I don't know why, but it's just, you know, in the Trinity or whatever, threes are always a great thing. And so it's like, it's perfect, but, but it's still missing something. It's, it's not perfect. See, to be a Christian means more than just these three things. To be a disciple of Jesus means more. Let's look back at Matthew 28 one more time. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Go and make disciples of all nations. But all nations implies a number of things, one of which is that you're going to have to make disciples of people that don't know Jesus already. So what does that look like? How do we make disciples of people that don't know Jesus? What does it mean for us? Well, Jesus answers that as well in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you remember Acts 1, this is the ultimate mic drop of all time, right? Jesus says this and then ascends to heaven. That's a pretty good way to say I'm done, right? Um, And it's direct. What does he say? He says, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. Now, what does it mean to be someone's witness? It means that you will testify, that you will tell what you have seen, that you will tell your story about Jesus. Now, if we're going to be making disciples of all nations and we're going to be Jesus' witnesses, we're going to be telling others about him, and that gives us one more set of words. Proclaim Jesus. Love God. Love people. Live truth proclaim Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, there are four things that are expected of you. Love God, love people, live truth, proclaim Jesus. So when we say LEFC exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ, that is what we mean. Now we'll get to unpack each one of these things over the next four weeks as we consider together as a congregation What it means to be disciples and what it means to make disciples Now as our staff team worked through these four phrases We found that everything we observed Jesus modeling to his disciples fit within these four phrases It was clear and it was simple We had a definition that we could agree on so that when we talk about making disciples we know what we mean so we know what a disciple is, but it's good to look back at how Jesus chose who would be his disciples Now think back to the story of me when Jesus decided he needed men to help him change the world What did he do? Well, he went straight to the seminary, right? He interviewed those professors He interviewed thousands of people Questionnaires, surveys, got everything already, ready and chose the 12 most qualified men You remember that story? No Nobody remembers that story because that's not how it happened, right? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, and let's look at the real story. We'll begin in verse 18. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I've got to be honest, that's not how I would have chosen the disciples, right? I would have interviewed, I'd have done questionnaires, I'd have checked references, and yet here it is. Jesus took guys that knew fishing. They knew the Sea of Galilee better than anyone. They knew where to find fish. They knew how to tend and fix nets. They knew how to keep a boat the right side up when it was in the water. They knew how to look at the sky and interpret when there was going to be a storm. They were fishermen. They weren't theologians. They weren't counselors. They weren't expert orators. They were fishermen. Honest men earning an honest living. And what did Jesus say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men or fishers of people. It says they left their nets and they followed him. They left their livelihood. They left their income. They left it all, and they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus because Jesus is worth giving everything up for. And he gave them something way better than money. He gave them a purpose. You know, I was a teenager the first time I went to San Francisco. And I remember as we drove across one of the big bridges that went into the, that connect all the various areas of San Francisco, off to the right was this amazing collection of ships in the water. I asked my dad what they were, and he said they were something called mothball ships. Now, it was impressive, right? There were a lot of ships there, and a lot of firepower, and a lot of capability in that harbor. At one point, there were 340 ships mothballed in the San Francisco Harbor. All that power, all that capability, and it was just sitting there. Now, I couldn't understand why, and my dad explained that they weren't needed anymore, but they were kept around because it was faster to restore one of them to service than to build a brand new ship. So, in the event of war, it was entirely possible that one of them could be called to serve on again. And just as mothballs are used to preserve clothes as they sit, these ships were maintained just enough to ensure they were solid enough to be put back into service if necessary. But every one of these ships had been decommissioned. Every one of these ships had no real purpose except to sit in the bay and rust. And I noticed something, they spend a lot of time together. They're really close, (laughs) right? These ships, they spend as much time and as close as they could possibly be. But despite all of that, they're accomplishing what? Nothing. Now, on this coast, when you drive over the bridge on 95 into Philadelphia, you see a mix of mothballed ships and other ships that are simply awaiting their final destination. All these ships have been decommissioned. They serve no purpose. The John L. Hall that I mentioned earlier is one of those ships. It's sitting in that harbor, rusting away, while its status as a reserve ship gets more and more likely to change to that of a retired ship awaiting its destruction. Decommissioned. It's a death sentence for a ship. Once a ship has been decommissioned, it stops serving its purpose, whether it's moving passengers around the world like the SS United States used to do or serving the needs of the U.S. military like the John L. Hall. But here's the thing. You never mothball a ship during war. You don't mothball a ship while it still has a job to do. You mothball a ship when it's unnecessary. You mothball a ship when you don't need it to do its purpose any longer. Now I have a question. When Jesus stood on the top of the mountain and said, commissioned his disciples to make disciples, do you think there were more people in the world then that didn't know Jesus, or now? Right, now by a long shot, right? The world population has grown tremendously since 36 or 33 A.D., there are far more people who don't know that Jesus is in the world now than there were then. Disciples of Jesus, we've not been mothballed. We're needed now more than ever. And as a follower of Jesus, you have not been decommissioned, but you are living under a commission from Jesus himself to make disciples of all nations. There is no reserve fleet when it comes to following Jesus. There's a lot of the world that doesn't yet know him. I have neighbors that don't know Jesus. I have friends that don't know Jesus. I have family that don't know Jesus. And I'll bet you have friends, neighbors, family, co-workers that don't know Jesus. Now honestly, I don't have any co-workers that don't know Jesus. or At least I hope I don't have any co-workers that don't know Jesus, right? But I'm guessing you do. That you have some co-workers that don't know Him. And see, that's not new. In fact, when Jesus called Matthew the tax collector to be his disciple, what's the first thing Matthew did? He invited his household, his oikos, over for dinner. And his household wasn't just relatives, but there were tax collectors and sinners there as well. See, Matthew, he understood it. He got his purpose from day one, and he lived it from day one. Personally, I was a little boy when I made the decision to follow Jesus. I was around four years old in a Sunday school class at my grandfather's church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I remember it well, although I don't remember the date, which is too bad because it is the date of my commissioning. It's the date when I took up the challenge to make disciples. But here's the thing. As a four-year-old, I wasn't great at making disciples yet, right? It just probably wasn't my sweet spot. But as time went on, I had the opportunity to witness for Jesus to my friends in high school. I had the opportunity to witness to my coworkers at Disneyland. I had the opportunity to witness to the scouts in my Boy Scout troop when I led one. I had the opportunity to be a witness really to anyone that God brought into my relational world. And as I spent time in the Word of God and in prayer, I learned to love God, to love people, and to live the truth of His Word. See, God is still developing me as His disciple. It's a process that continues every single day. I'm far from perfect, and there are many that are better disciples than I am. But I keep leaning into Jesus, learning more and more. So I have a question. What was the date of your commissioning? Do you have one? If you don't know Jesus, you haven't been commissioned yet. The journey from here to there is simple. Admit you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died for your sins, and choose to follow him. That's all it takes to move from a person to becoming a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus with a mission. So, the question for the rest of us are we acting like disciple makers, living according to the calling of Jesus, commissioned to make disciples, or are we acting like a decommissioned ship clustered together with the other ships that will never move or serve a purpose again? How are we doing? Jesus has commissioned each and every one of us to make disciples, and the only decommissioning ceremony is called a funeral. That means you have a purpose. You have a reason for being here, a reason to get out of bed every single morning. Do you have friends? God has given you a group of people to point towards Jesus. Do you have a family? God has given you a group of people that can't get rid of you, even if they want to, that you get to point towards Jesus, right? Do you have a job? God has given you a place to encounter others that need to be disciples of Jesus. Do you have a place to live? God has given you people around you that need a life worthy of the one who created them. Do you have kids in school? God has given you connections with other families that need the peace of God at this time in their lives. See, Jesus gave us a purpose. He commissioned each and every one of us to fulfill that purpose. And there's no out clause. So let's live lives worthy of the calling placed upon us to make disciples. To make people that love God, love people, live truth, and proclaim Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful for who you are, for how you love us, and for how you have called us. Lord, we thank you for your commission to make disciples that you didn't leave us here just to be happy, but you left us here with a purpose. You left us here to, be, to revel in your love, to take joy in you, and to make disciples of others, that we may share that love with those around us. Lord, may each of us look to this week, to next week, to the coming months, and think through how we can live according to our commission. May we find those that don't know you and bring them to your faith. May we bring those who know you along as they continue to learn who you are and how you've called them. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go into this next song, take some time to reflect on your commissioning to make disciples. How can you continue to live this out? After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. See, after the Great Commission, Jesus ascended into heaven. As his disciples stood there looking into the sky in wonder, the angels reminded them they had a purpose and it was time to get to work. Each of us has a purpose. Each of us has been commissioned to go and make disciples. So as you go, live according to the commission you've been given. You are dismissed.